I would say one of the things that I know about myself at this stage in life, at 69, is that I have earned the right to tell the truth. I'm too old to fake it. <laughs> I'm just not doing that anymore. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm recording this intro early in the morning, and I think it's pretty obvious for my voice, but I promise it's not like this throughout the entire episode. This episode concludes my conversation with Alelia Bundles and wraps up season four. If you haven't listened to the first part of my conversation with Alelia, check out last week's episode. Even though season four is coming to an end, I've got a few gifts coming over the holiday season, and I'd love for you to share the gift of the second chapter with a friend. Let them know if you love the show, and let me know by leaving a five-star rating and review. So without further ado, here's part two of Finding Her Own Ground with Alelia Bundles. When I was in Atlanta, Alex Haley actually approached us, my family, mm -hmm. and he was still riding the crest of roots. And he came to us and said he wanted to do a mini series and a book, a fictionalized book about Madam Walker. And I w was in New York with two other people who, you know, who were related to Madam Walker's attorney. We had dinner on Columbus Avenue. I remember this dinner. And during the dinner, Alex said, I'm going to hire six researchers and we'll blanket this. And, we'll, and I said, excuse me, Mr. Haley, I wrote my master's paper <laughs> at Columbia <laughs> about Madam Walker. And I have all these letters and I'd be happy to do the research. And so I became his researcher. And I took a, what started as a three-month leave of absence turned into a nine-month leave of absence from my mm -hmm. job as a producer. And when I look back on that, I'm like, wow, they were that was really extraordinary that, that I was able to do that. But that gave me the foundation for the research. And Alex never finished writing a book. And in some ways, I think that was the way the universe wanted it to be. I finished writing my young adult biography on Madam Walker on a freighter trip with Alex. That's where he would write when he was under the gun and not meeting his deadlines. But I finished writing that book. So that came out in 91. Alex died in 92. And then it took another you know, decade for me to actually publish the book. But because of Alex, what Alex was so wonderful about including me and using my research. And we had two meetings on his farm in outside of Knoxville, Tennessee with Mark Walper and Reuben Cannon, who had done the casting for Roots. And Alex had allowed me to invite two researchers to come down, two historians to come down. So we talked about what we would do and the grand plans. And on one of those weekends, I shared a cabin with Lisa Drew, who was Alex's editor on Roots. And we shared a cabin so that when I was ready to write a book and had a book proposal, my agent took it to several different people. But we ended up with Lisa because Lisa had already knew the story because Alex had talked about it so much. So all along the way, I was at NBC. I took a leave of absence, nine months to do some research for Alex. My young adult book came out in 91. It was really the first biography on Madam Walker. Alex died in 92 without finishing the book. But then it took me another several years so that my book On Her Own Ground came out in 2001. But on holidays and weekends, I was always trying to do some research, going to visit an archive, trying to interview some of the elderly people who were still around. So on her own ground, what chapter title would that be from your beautiful chapter titles? Our stories are our power. 
which I love because as someone who also does theater and hopefully some film production, I just believe so much in the power of our stories, whether they're the ones like we're talking about now, whether they're the fictionalized stories that we can tell based on our experiences. So such a good chapter title. I'm glad that's the one we've come to. You originally had interest more in Elelia, your great grandmother, and the whole Harlem Renaissance. So that's something that kind of was put on the back burner a bit because all of this started with Madame Walker and there's been several books about Madame Walker how has it evolved that you now it's kind of your full-time thing you're the family historian you have crates and crates of crates and crates (laughs) a room of (laughs) family history so how has that all evolved when I started writing on her own ground I thought it was going to be a double biography of Madam Walker and Alilia Walker and at some point I realized that Alilia Walker needed her own story that Madam Walker should that should stand on its own and I tried to weave in their relationship to set the stage but I intentionally didn't tell Alilia Walker's story because I knew I wanted to tell it and I didn't want anybody else to have enough information <laughs> to be able to <laughs> so I was protecting my sources <laughs> So the last, I don't know, 12 or 15 pages of On Her Own Ground are kind of Alilia Walker's life for the last, the next decade of her life, but just with a little bit of information, not a whole lot. And it's taken me 20 years. (laughs) So now I've done another 20 years worth of research about her. And when I was writing On Her Own Ground, I didn't really have time to learn everything that you could learn in another 20 years. But in the same way that I had internalized what other people said about Madame Walker before I had done my own research, I had internalized some of what other historians and scholars had written about Alilia Walker. They portrayed her as, she's Madame Walker's daughter. Madame Walker made the money. She spent the money. She Mm. had parties during the 1920s, she really wasn't that much a patron of the arts and was not as so as Medillaton and not worth really paying much attention to. I knew nobody was that pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) And there were enough threads for me to pull that I started really delving into her and trying to, you know, not make her more than she is, but also trying to not diminish her and not caricature her. And so through these many years of additional research, I've been able to create this life in full where she is her mother's daughter. That's going to always be the headline that she's Madam C.J. Walker's daughter. But she was also very much a patron of the arts. She really loved music and theater. And she was an impresario who knew how to do events. So for instance, the chapter that I'm writing right now, it's taken me a month to, I mean, I have all, I have all my rough draft and all my sources, but it's taken me a month to finally craft this chapter because it started out really just being about a party that she gave and about the state of her marriage at that point. This is 1926. But as I started pulling the pieces together, what I realized is that this particular party in 1926 was an expression of a new version of the Black elite, of Black society. That there had been a book that Carl Van Vechten had written that has a title that (laughs) was offensive to a lot of people. The N-word heaven was the title, and it made a lot of people mad. But she was, there's a character that's loosely based on her. And she took a lot of heat for that. But 
I think her answer to that was this party where she invited all of these Black professionals and talented Black musicians. And then there were a number of Carl Van Becken's white friends and some uh, British journalists and artists and European royalty who came to the party. So now I have this story of Alelia Walker in 1926, not just having a party, which people would say was just frivolous, but having a gathering where she was bringing people together and saying, here are the best and the brightest of African-Americans. Yeah, and shining a spotlight of, it's not this caricature that you think of me or of African-Americans. You said about getting this more complex picture, but I have to say when I read the title of your upcoming book, I was like, that is the dream to be described as the joy goddess. So it's right. the joy goddess of Harlem, Alelia Walker and the Harlem Renaissance. To me, to be described as a joy goddess, I can't think of anything better. And it doesn't have to be frivolous. It sounds like she was doing it in a way that was very calculated. Right. Yes, it was very calculated. And it's not that she didn't just also have a good time because she was <laughs> definitely about having a good time and being with her friends and drinking champagne and all of that stuff. But Langston Hughes, the, the poet, called her the joy goddess of Harlem's 1920s in his memoir, The Big C. And he described these parties and he really appreciated her, where, where some people were much more judgmental. But he wrote a poem that was read at her funeral and called her Queen of the Night. So it is kind of a Princess Diana, you know, complicated life. People judge, they really didn't understand, but there's a certain glamour that attracted them. And I think she had some of those same qualities. So going back to Madam C.J. Walker, 20 years after the book almost, Self Made was released as a miniseries on Netflix. I know it was a fictionalized account. So how much of it was really accurate? Were you happy with the kind of portrayal of, why did it take 20 years? I have many questions. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, were you happy with the portrayal? I mean, it being fictionalized, did it seem like it hit the important points? As they say, it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> so my, because my initial experience dipping my toe into possible miniseries, book to movie, was with Alex Haley, who included me in every step of the process, I had an expectation that's what would happen. We went through several different iterations where when I was writing the book, it was actually optioned by Sony Columbia TriStar. One of my college classmates was an executive, optioned the book, a script was written by another writer, the studio didn't like the script, the option came back to me. So that's 2000, 2001. A decade later, HBO options the book. The writer who's working on that does a treatment and dies. And so then the option came back to me. Then we went through a period of about a decade where the conventional wisdom in Hollywood was Black stuff doesn't sell overseas. And so we're not doing this. And then 12 Years a Slave and Selma and other movies that were successful and really well done were produced and women started complaining about not being in director's roles. So then there was a scramble uh, a few years ago to do things about people of color and to include women and to have great women stories. So at that point, my phone started ringing again. Mm -hmm. I talked with four or five different 
studios. And one of the producers that I spoke with, Mark Holder, was, you know, a call out of the blue, loved my book. And I, I made the decision to go with Mark's company because it seemed like I was going to be really included in the process. And as it turns out, once a writer was hired and once showrunners, all Black women were hired, they really excluded me from the process, even though my contract said I had script review. And for a year and a half, there was just radio silence. And, and I think it was because my initial conversation with the writer, which I thought would be like a series of conversations, but yeah. she, the writer said, well, this is what her idea was. And she was going to have Madam Walker and her competitor. This was going to be the centerpiece of the story. And I said, casually, I think that is an interesting you know, way to have conflict, but I would not make that the centerpiece of the story. And because I disagreed with that, I was intentionally cut out of the conversation. But because the contract said I had script review, ultimately, I was able to review the scripts. And, you know, and I gave, as they say, lots of notes. <laughs> <laughs> I um, have a few notes. <laughs> <laughs> lots of notes. But by then the fix was in. And, you know, so anyway, but Octavia Spencer was great. Let me just start with that. Octavia was great. I'm so glad she was cast in the role because I think she brought a sense of purpose and intention to that role, she took Madam Walker, playing Madam Walker very seriously and with a great deal of respect. I loved the scene with the market women where she's recruiting them. It was great to have Blair Underwood as Octavia Spencer's love interest. He's a lovely man. There were some, <laughs> there were some great actors in the series, but the series is probably about 80% not true. I think you're going to say the other way. And I was like, that's really good. But yeah, that's really not true. <laughs> not true. But it was very much, I think that the showrunners and the writer thought that this was what they needed to do to attract an audience, that they wanted to have what essentially was a cat fight between two women. That's, you know, sort of a stereotypical tropey kind of approach to a Hollywood movie they introduced colorism as a conflict between Madame Walker and her competitor, when in real life she did have a competitor, but skin color was not at all a part of it. The Booker T. Washington character was just such a misogynist. And I know some of his descendants and they were so upset. And I, you know, and initially people thought I was fine with that. And I had to say, no, I really objected to that because I know that there's more nuance. She didn't live next door to John D. Rockefeller. And when they were writing that, I said, you're going to make people think this that she just walked up onto his lawn. Well, that didn't happen. And you're really taking history and changing it in a way that I think is inappropriate. And then finally, Madam Walker's attorney, F.B. Ransom, totally a straight arrow, had taken an oath as a young man to never curse, smoke, or gamble. And in the film, they introduced this character who was not just a numbers runner, but a pimp as his cousin who entices him to make an illegal bet. And so you're left with this impression that that this real life guy who crossed the T's and dotted the I's and kept Madam Walker away from people like that character, that he could be compromised. So I really, I understand that Hollywood, you know, has to do things to make a story interesting. But I think that the first time some of these Black characters are being presented on the big screen or the streaming screen, there should be 
if things are changed, it shouldn't change the core values of the person. So that was my concern. And I do have to say, having someone who is the first female to be this kind of millionaire success story, and as a Black woman, that's already such an interesting story that it's a shame to say, oh, let's really sensationalize it. And I think that the things that I was saying all along in my extensive notes was, I was trying to, you know, warn them, this is the, there are, most people don't know who Madam Walker is, but. The people who do have a, had a certain expectation. The mothers who wanted to watch it with their daughters, who wanted to hold her up as a role model, they couldn't really watch it because of the content of the show. The people who wanted to see Madam Walker in a certain light were really turned off by the way that the two women were fighting each other. And I really did try to warn the producers that this was going to be a problem and they knew best. <laughs> <laughs> they knew what the audience wanted. And if people watch it and they don't really know anything about it, it's really entertaining. And so, you know, and now more people know Madam Walker's name and that's great, but I, it could have been so much better. Hopefully though, that has led people to the story and to the books that you've written that are more accurate and books that other people have written that really tell the true story. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and you, it's got to be entertaining, but it also needs to have the core of truth. And believe me, I'm working on other things. So <laughs> this will not be the last pass at telling the story. I would say one of the things that I know about myself at this stage in life, at 69, is that I have earned the right to tell the truth. I've always tried to be diplomatic because you don't want to shut down a conversation, but I'm too old to fake it. I'm just not doing that anymore. <laughs> and there are other situations, other things that I'm involved in where you know, I, a decade ago, I might have pulled my punches. At this point, I don't need anything from anybody. I still have some income because I have some multiple streams of income. So I, I'm fine on that front. And so I can say what I think. And if I think that something is harmful, not just not for my self-interest, but if I think it's in the interest of the larger community and the community that I care about, I'm going to speak up at this stage. Yeah, I know you said that you were working on some of the um, Indianapolis historical archives and things mm -hmm. like that, and that you finally felt like you could say what you thought. So I moved away from Indianapolis in 1970 when I went to college. So I've been gone for a really long time, but I've never lost my ties and my affinity for the city. And I have found myself being pulled back in. I, I've been on some advisory boards for the last several years, but this year I seem to have become involved in a lot of different things and speaking to different groups. You could do, I could do this remotely. So I've spoken to a number of leadership groups in Indianapolis. I've just gone onto the board of Indiana Landmarks and I'm getting an award from the Indiana Historical Society, a living legend award, <laughs> which is, you know, okay. <laughs> How old does are that, you? I was going to say, does that make you feel old? Because it sounds so like you've it's, made it this it's far. Right. But it, it's really nice to get those. But I really have felt that this was an opportunity to speak up about some of the things that are some of the wrongs that happened in my hometown. And last year's murder of George Floyd 
caused many people all over the country to think about race and to think about community. the world. Absolutely. Right, the exactly. world. And so in Indianapolis, the black neighborhood, Indiana Avenue, which is where the Madam Walker building is, was essentially destroyed, as mm -hmm. were communities in many cities. As highways were being built, there was disinvestment in the black neighborhoods, and then that allowed city councils and developers to say, these neighborhoods aren't really important, they're slums, and so we're going to tear them down. But what that did was to destroy the homes of thousands of people and to destroy generational wealth. And in Indianapolis, the IU, Indiana University campus was essentially built on what had been a Black neighborhood. Well, now there's a reckoning and people are acknowledging that these neighborhoods were destroyed. But the question becomes, what now happens as development and gentrification is going on? So I've been able to speak out. And fortunately, there are a number of people in leadership roles in Indianapolis who are receptive to that and who also feel the same way. So I don't know what the outcome will be, but I know that if I do nothing else, I'm going to make sure that I'm telling the history, I'm making people aware of the facts, and then if the planets align, then some good will come of it. I definitely think some will. And not to mention going to awards again, but the Forbes 50 over 50 impact award. So cool. First of all, I just have to say that before I'd seen that you've gotten the impact one, I had been tweeting out and Instagramming how excited I was that there finally was a Forbes award that was recognizing women over 50. And you have the, you're on the impact list. Yeah. What an amazing list. The Forbes 50 over 50 list of you know, world leaders and women who are doing amazing things and starting corporations. That is just so inspirational. And then to be on the Forbes 50 over 50 impact list, which includes people like Heather Cox Richardson, who writes an amazing history newsletter every day that I read, the person who is head of the Library of Congress. It's just really great to be included in that group. And there's a vast difference between all of us and the accomplishments that we have. But I am so grateful to be recognized, not just for telling my family story, but for really highlighting women and understanding the importance of understanding our family stories and knowing what women historically have done. So I, I love being recognized for that work. And it's work that I would do no matter what. It's my passion now to be able to use Madam Walker's story to inspire others. So it's just a little cherry on top to get that uh, recognition. And in that big, massive room full of archives and files. I know you have a lot of files. How many more books, how many more stories do you see in that room? You know, this is the last book. So much for that question. <laughs> but it's not the last story I will tell. But these books, this writing on her own ground and now writing The Joy Goddess of Harlem, these are books that really are like major excavation. It's like going into the mine and you find a little thread that you pull out and then, and then it might be another three months before you find the next thread of gold. So these books take a long time because I'm writing about people uh, who've not had books written about them and whose friends and whose circle of friends all are worth a book on their own. And so to be able to incorporate all of that's just a lot of work. I mean, these are 20 year projects. But 
I do. I what I would like to do <laughs> once this book is finished is read a lot of the books that I have accumulated about some of these other people. And then I think if there's another project that I have, it's writing long poems about some of the other people in my family. Because there are other people in my family for, who for me are just as interesting, but they're not famous, but they represent different threads of American history. So I discovered my grandmother, May, who was adopted by Alelia Walker. Her biological family members were free people of color in North Carolina in the 18th century. Two of her great something grandfathers were in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. And then as it became uncomfortable for free people of color in North Carolina, after some of the slave uprisings, members of her family moved to Indiana. So they were some of the earliest black settlers in Indiana in the 1830s. So there's their stories interesting. My grandfather, who was married to this grandmother, was part of a family where one of his great grandmothers in a lawsuit got her freedom in Tennessee in the 1830s. Her son became a state legislature and a sheriff in Arkansas during Reconstruction, sent his children to Oberlin. So there are these stories that kind of tell another dimension of American history. And I want their stories to be known as well. Because one of the things that I think we're learning now is there's all this fight about what can be taught in schools, which is not a new fight. Mm -hmm. But these, how much can we talk about race? We don't want to tell those stories. Because when we don't know that there were these people, African Americans who were doing things, and it's very easy for somebody who wants to other us or who wants to denigrate us to say their their stories aren't important. They've never done anything. But if you keep your children ignorant, you will always, you will believe that and the next generation will believe that. And so will young kids of color because they're not able to learn those things. I was talking to somebody recently who's reading East of Eden and they said how uncomfortable it was with the language, the, the language that we would say so racist. And, but at the same time, I was like, but that that was what was happening. I don't necessarily agree that there should be a statue commemorating people <laughs> who are horrible. I do think if we don't recognize history, whether it's the accomplishments of Black Americans or Black people worldwide, if it's not recognizing that there was racism, like all of that needs to be combined together. So we have a really good sense of what our history is. So we can only move forward. Yeah, because listen, a lot of the details are horrid. They really are. I'm, I'm, I, I do a lot of audiobooks now because I don't, I can't give myself the luxury of sitting on the couch and reading a book. So when I have to start my car every few days because the otherwise the battery will die because I don't drive my car. So when, so if I'm in the garden or if I'm driving my car, I listen to audiobooks. And the one I'm listening to right now is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, and it's about the history of housing discrimination in America. I mean, and how intentional it was to deny loans to Black people, to create neighborhoods that were segregated. It is really, it's an ugly history, but my sense of it, it's not to make people feel guilty about it. It's to make sure that we know it so we don't continue to do it. That's my goal. Absolutely. But I know that a lot of people just, they don't want to know. If we don't know these things. Yeah, it's important to know. How could we ever change the world and the way it's been in the past? Well, it's the personal relationships can make such a difference. But because we are so segregated in our lives, it's there's very little, there are very few 
relatively speaking, true friendships that are cross-racial. We're lucky to have them. And I'm, I'm fortunate that in my overwhelmingly white <laughs> schools and in my and in my corporate life, I have fortunately made, made some really good friends. But on this topic of how personal connections with people, when I was starting to do the research on Madam Walker, when I was moving from Houston to Atlanta, I made a detour and went to Delta, Louisiana, where Madam Walker was born. And when I got to this town, which is a little like there was a quick stop and nothing else in this town and a few trailers, I went to the store, to the little neighborhood store, and there was a guy behind the counter, a white guy. And I said, I had family who lived in this town long ago named Breedlove. Do you know, are there any Breedloves here? Do you know any Breedloves? And he said, and he, he was a really, he was a Cajun guy. So he had a really thick Southern accent. And <laughs> yeah. he said, I don't know, but there are two colored ladies who live next door. If anybody knows, they know. <laughs> so I went to see, I went next door to these two elderly ladies. And it turns out their mother had known Madam Walker when she was Sarah Breedlove. And Madam Walker had visited Delta, Louisiana in 1916. That's where this picture of her cabin comes from. They remembered that. And we talked. And then later I was doing research. They had moved to St. Louis and I interviewed them again. But in the process, I learned that the family who had owned her parents and on whose plantation she was born still owned the land. And I met those descendants and I'm friends with them. We talk about this and what that means to them. But one of the descendants, when we did the stamp unveiling for the Madam Walker stamp in 1998, he came to the stamp ceremony in Indianapolis. He lived in Savannah. He and his daughter came. And so you know, and we had, we had met each other. We had a friendly relationship. And I was introducing him as his great-grandfather owned Madam Walker's parents. And at one point, his name was Bernie Long. Bernie said, Alelia, could you please not introduce me in that way? And I, I hadn't said it in, in a way. For me, it was like, that's just a fact. But Mm -hmm. I understood that that was like, I don't really, that's not really how I want to be known. And so I think it's trying to understand how do people want to feel about themselves? And for me, it wasn't a judgment or a criticism. It was just a fact. But we tell that story in a different way now. And when I talk with his children and his nieces and nephews, we can have a conversation about what that meant. But it's nice that history's come full circle and now that you can be friends with this guy. Right. So one last thing. Did you bring a quote for me today? Yes. So James Baldwin is a person who is endlessly quotable. But I think for this period of life, as I am concerned about things that still need to be changed and things that I thought when I graduated from high school that problems would be solved that are still problems. And And I thought when I graduated from high school that they'd be solved and they're still problems. And they're still problems. But the idea that sometimes people just close their minds and don't want to hear the truth or they don't want to acknowledge reality. But here's the James Baldwin quote that means a lot to me. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I think that perfectly sums up what we were just talking about. Yeah. You have to be able to trust somebody 
to be honest with them. And we don't have enough interaction with people where we can say what we think without feeling that we're going to be attacked. Definitely. And I think it applies to a lot of other aspects of life as well, just facing up to things that need change. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what's the next chapter called? You didn't have that assignment. (laughs) The next chapter is vacation. (laughs) (laughs) The next chapter is gardening. (laughs) You deserve it. You absolutely deserve it. I don't believe you because I think just even from that short bit of saying how many other stories are lingering in those files, we're going to get some more. But in the meantime, I hope you get a little vacation or a little gardening in. (laughs) You know, I had in early 20, must have been 2018 because boy, 2019 was a bear of a year. I had my father and both of my brothers died in 2019. So that oh, was gosh. that was deep. <laughs> that was deep. But there's always gratitude. And I am grateful that it wasn't 2020 yes. when they were sick, because I looked at people, I just felt so badly for people who couldn't go to funerals and that kind of thing. But so 2018, I went on a cruise and I'm not a cruise person, but this was with the university group, it was to Cuba and it was on a French ship that usually slept 60, but there were only 30 of us. So we had French food for breakfast and dinner. And then we got off and we toured the island. We went to different, all all over the island. And I thought this is, I would love to do one of those every year, going to the places on my bucket list. And so eventually if we get to travel again, I want to take one trip a year to all of these places that I haven't been. Yes, so do I. I never have been a cruise person, but you just sold me on the idea of that particular yeah, cruise. That particular, yeah, I'm, I just, I went on a big cruise. It was horrible. I just, ugh. but this was, this was, you had your own cabin and it was a small group and everybody was well-traveled. So it was a great collegial group. Well, I hope you get some time to recover, but I actually look forward to seeing what you do next because I don't think it's going to be gardening. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right. I think you're right. This has been fun. And it is, it, there is such joy to be at this stage of life, but to fortunately be healthy, to not have a lot of anxiety about things and to be doing what I want to do and to be able to maybe do a little bit of mentoring and a little bit of good for my community. That's, uh, I can't think of anything better. Thank you so much for joining me. You've definitely made me look forward to 69 because it looks and sounds really good on you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Lelia. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, that's it for me from season four of the second chapter. I will have a few little special things coming for you for the holiday season, but in the meantime, have a healthy, happy, and restful end to your 2021, and I look forward to seeing you in 2022. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. If you haven't subscribed or followed the Second Chapter podcast yet, what are you waiting for? It's free, and we would love to have you listening every week. Thanks again.